Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. The following program is an MLWradio.com production. Don't you know that you can save thousands at SaveWithBruce.com? You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket either, pal. And thank God, I want to be in my own house. And SaveWithBruce.com can make it happen. Cheaper monthly payments, cash out, debt consolidation, and you can even skip your next two house payments. SaveWithBruce.com. You heard me, damn it. SaveWithBruce.com. NMLS 65084. Equal housing lender. Welcome to WHW Monday. Tony Schiavone and Conrad Thompson talking about the great years of world championship wrestling, the NWA, and Jim Crockett promotions. And now let's go to the ring. Here's your co-host. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to What Happened When? Monday with Tony Schiavone right here on MLW Radio. The man himself, Tony Schiavone. What's going on, dude? How are you? Hey, buddy, what's going on, and how's everybody doing? We're really excited about coming to Dallas. We're really excited, really, even as much about bringing you another edition of What Happened When? here on MLW Radio We've had so much, so many uh, great responses, so many people on Twitter and on Facebook uh, getting in touch with us. Uh, Conrad, I'm, I'm just really excited about the, the direction we're going in, especially after some news that we had during the week. And um, it's just good to be with you again. Well, let's go ahead and talk about the news this week. Uh, Dave Meltzer wrote in this week's edition of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, uh, he was trying to discuss the 205 Live initiative that the WWE has put out. Uh, if you're not really keeping up with the current wrestling product, the WWE has created their own cruiserweight division and they air a one hour show exclusive to the WWE network right after SmackDown. And they have these stars appear on both raw and SmackDown, uh, but more specifically SmackDown. And then they do this to kind of promote the two Oh five live programming that airs brand new each and every Wednesday live or each and every Tuesday, rather live. Uh, right after SmackDown. So in Meltzer's article, he wrote that even Halloween Havoc 1998 was watched by more people on the WWE Network this last week than 205 Live. Now, that seems kind of random until you realize, hey, uh, this isn't necessarily an anniversary for the 98 Halloween Havoc. It's not necessarily anything to do with the ultimate warrior. It's not like it's his birthday or an anniversary of his passing or a historical anniversary outside of it's the same week that Tony Schiavone covered Halloween havoc, 1998, right here on what happened when Monday. So Tony, we are making a difference in the business, man. We are impacting what people are watching on the network. Uh, how does it feel to not only be back in the business, but damn dude, you're moving or shaker. Uh, making the needles move is the old cliche we used to use. And I, 
I, I'm stunned, and I, I've written to Vince, and I want a uh, I want a share of the weekly profits. I mean, <laughs> realistically, I know this sounds crazy, but uh, there probably is some sort of a referral network situation. I mean, I feel like we ought to be getting a little piece of that because if you're actually watching the network and we're directing you to watch certain things in order to understand and appreciate uh, what we're doing, especially from a live commentary standpoint, then it feels like we're driving traffic to the network and we need a little piece of that referral money. You're darn right. And as a matter of fact, we go to Dallas on, on the 9th of July. We're going to hit him up if we see him. <laughs> Not <laughs> if we see show. him. I'm taking you and uh, I'm going to let you present it and then I'm going to hide around the corner. <laughs> How's that sound? That sounds good. Well, what we're talking about is three links in Dallas. It's on Sunday, July the 9th. Now, we're encouraging you to be there by 1 o'clock because we're going to do a meet and greet with everybody. A lot of times when you see these live shows, you've got two separate price points for tickets. You've got general admission, then you've got VIP. Everybody is a VIP when it comes to what happened when with Tony Schiavone. And we want to see you at three links. It's on Elm Street, right in Dallas, just a couple miles away from where you'll enjoy Great Balls of Fire. This is Sunday, July the 9th at 1 o'clock. That's when the meet and greet starts. The show is actually going to kick off at 3, and we're going to keep it to two hours. You'll be out of there by 5 o'clock. And you've only got to get two miles down the road to the big show. Uh, there's only one place to buy your tickets, though, and that's at whwlive.com. Just type that in your Google machine, whwlive.com. You'll see it's easy to follow, it's easy to digest, and it's easy to make plans this far ahead. Sunday, July the 9th, 1 o'clock, WHW Live. Tony, what might we talk about at this live event? What might we talk about at this live event? Well, it says all ages and that kind of threw me off a little bit because I was really expecting lots of Deborah talk, a Medusa run in, maybe a little glass coffee table expose. I'm not exactly sure though, if it's all ages, like what are we doing here? Yeah, I, I understand. I will stay off the coffee table talk. I'll probably come up with another Klondike bill story. We'll obviously, uh, you know, take questions and, uh, go back and forth and, uh, y and you just never know what, uh, what else we're going to talk about. I also do want to talk about, uh, my, my journey in wrestling, which is kind of an odd story. If you think about, I was just a, a, a low life baseball announcer, which I guess I still am. I was going to say, it feels like you have sandwiched your career here. You went from low <laughs> yeah. life baseball announcer, and now we're back to low life baseball announcer. <laughs> well, not any of I was in, I was in very small a ball back then. Uh, and now I'm in big time, triple a baseball. So there you go. Uh, uh, and I just talk about the journey because it's interesting. It really is. I mean, I, I really think that because I was such a big wrestling fan growing up in the Virginias and a big mid Atlantic fan, uh, and I always wanted to be a wrestling announcer. I just, I, I fell into it. I, I just, I just, I don't not to blow my own horn, but I think it's an interesting story because I know there's a lot of people out there that said, when they were growing up, you know, I, I'd like to be a wrestling announcer. I've heard from a lot of people on Twitter. It says, uh, you know, well, you know, I, I've, I've done some wrestling announcing, uh, and, uh, I'm into it. Thank you very much for inspiring my career. And, uh, sometimes you just got to be in the right place at the right time. And I was, so we'll talk about that. And of course, well, you and I have a lot of fun and, uh, you never know what will come out of our mouths when we're live, you know? 
You never know what will come out of our mouths when we're sitting here talking to each other either. Well, I think that's why everybody's tuning in and we greatly appreciate you tuning in. Uh, if you haven't already go check us out on Facebook, it's facebook.com forward slash WHW Monday. That's facebook.com forward slash WHW Monday. We asked you to do that a couple of weeks ago because we were doing a special promotion where you could win it before you could buy it with a brand new four horsemen book. Uh, if you haven't already mark your calendars, we are going to be covering the four horsemen uh, and that's going to happen in June before you know it. So mark your calendars. Uh, we're going to make this happen for you. Finally, the four horsemen episodes you always wanted, but in the meantime, you can keep up with all things going on here with the show, uh, over at facebook.com forward slash WHW Monday. Uh, and we also encouraged you this last week to go ahead and retweet a tweet about the new book that we've got coming out. Uh, thanks to mid Atlantic gateway and Dick Bourne. Now it's worth mentioning mid Atlantic gateway. While it's not necessarily a site that you and I are involved in directly with, uh, we think a lot of those guys, and it's a pretty damn awesome site. If you enjoy the good old days of professional wrestling, wouldn't you agree, Tony? Yeah. Dick Bourne, uh, and, uh, Mike Chappelle, uh, are, are good friends and uh, they are, are, are my age. We all kind of grew up in the same area together, loving the sport at the same time. We also have a lot in common. Got to meet those guys uh, last year at the uh, Fan Fest. Great guys. And and I, I go to that site all the time to go back and relive some of the memories. You know, uh, the memories that that to me are, are, are the reason I started loving wrestling uh, and started my connection with the Nature Boy Ric Flair that has now gone on into a great friendship that has lasted all until, you know, the, uh, uh, what's going on currently with me and him, which I'm not so sure what it is. Last time I called that son of a bitch, he picked up the phone. He said, what do you want? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I, uh, nothing. How you doing? You son of a bitch. And that was about the extent of our phone call. But so anyway, back to mid Atlantic gateway, you Hypo- the hypothetically, did you call after with, 6 PM? Hypothetically, did you call after 6 PM? Yes, I did. Real tight. Continue. <laughs> okay. Uh, so the, the Mid-Atlantic Gateway rekindles the memories of some of the great wrestling back when the territories were strong and wrestling meant something. You know, it's changed so much. And I think it's it's kind of odd we'd be talking about it because you think about what Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling was back then, and now you think about what we're going to be talking about here with Mayhem 99. It's an entirely different monster, entirely different product. Uh, the wrestling changed so has changed so greatly and, and still has evolved now to what it is today. And sometimes I'm not so sure what it is today, but, um, great memories, man. And you can relive those memories. Uh, we encouraged you to retweet our tweet. And by doing so, you were automatically entered, uh, in your chance to win a copy of this book before you can buy it. It is available for pre-order. I don't know that they're shipping just yet, but you can get it before anybody else does. All you've got to do is type it in your machine, www.midatlanticgateway.com. That's www.midatlanticgateway.com. That is exclusive for what happened when listeners, nobody else can even order this thing yet, but you could win one before it's available for sale. All you had to do was retweet that tweet about the four horsemen book. And we're proud to say that Stuart a Miller 
you, my friend, have won a copy of the Four Horsemen book. You retweeted this tweet, and we absolutely loved your bio. Uh, fan of Georgia Tech sports, Braves baseball, live music, expensive bourbon, and a nice seersucker suit. But maybe the best part about it, the handle is live at the Omni 85. That, my friend, is a Four Horsemen fan, and you've got a brand new copy of the Four Horsemen book. Just send us a DM, get us your shipping address, and we'll make sure we get that book out to you. Stay tuned to our Twitter and our Facebook. We're going to have more ways where you can win a book this coming week. We're giving away four special copies, and then we're going to give away four copies on our Four Horsemen episode. Mark your calendars, Monday, June 19th. So we're going to continue our WCW year-by-year pay-per-view look back. And then finally, the one you really wanted, the Four Horsemen episode right here on What Happened When is on Monday, June 19th. And we're going to celebrate this book and give away some copies along the way. So we appreciate your support. And uh, we've got something to look forward to. But I'm actually looking forward to talking about Mayhem 99, Tony. And I didn't realize this until I started it. But I don't think I ever saw this pay-per-view. And if I did, this is the first time since November of 1999 I saw this pay-per-view. Is this the first time you've seen it since you called it live? Yeah, first time I've seen it. Uh, And after we watched the week before and talked about Halloween Havoc 98, uh, it is is amazing the change of WCW from 98 to 99. It really is. I'm glad you mentioned that because this feels like another company completely. Yeah. uh, Everything about it is different. And to me, it all started to sort of blur together, maybe about halfway through 99, maybe when the, the summer on, it all just kind of blurs together for me. Um, I was not a big video gamer in 1999, but apparently one of the reasons this was called Mayhem 99 was for the video game tie-in. I guess there was a WCW Mayhem video game. Did you ever play that or any of the WCW video games? Was that something in your wheelhouse? Yeah, we, uh, of course I grew up or grew up. I had four young boys at that time who were all into video games. So it was a, it was a big deal. And I had a chance. I would go to uh, Vancouver and electronic arts to their headquarters, uh, to do a lot of voiceover. So I went out to Vancouver many, many times during that stretch and got to know the video game people out there. They were tremendous people, got to do a lot of work with them, made some pretty good little money on the side doing the voiceover. And, uh, so I, yeah, I was really involved in all that stuff. They were a, they were a fantastic partner for WCW back then, Conrad, uh, to the point to where they were probably much better to us than we were to them because they were a very organized professional company and we were just like out of control. And I know a lot of times I would go to Vancouver and there were people in the front office that were upset that they didn't get everything that they thought they needed to be able to adequately, adequately uh, promote, uh, our pay-per-views or, or their, or our, their video games. Uh, so that was, uh, that was a good relationship and it was a relationship that we should have, uh, done a lot better job at, at, uh, cultivating. So there's a lot going on here, and we're going to talk about some of this in the future in long form, but let's touch on it briefly. This pay-per-view is historically significant uh, because this is the first kind of glimpse into the Vince Russo era of WCW. Uh, And this comes after um, Harvey Schiller quits as head of Turner Sports because he's going to work for George Steinbrenner. Do you remember when Schiller is on his way out thinking... Hey, he's timing this right. He's getting off a sinking ship. 
or was it something where you thought, oh, without him, we're screwed? Well, I thought, oh, without him, we're screwed. Uh, and I liked Harvey. He was a, he was a, he was a tough guy, but he was a good leader. And I just thought with him leaving that there would now be no one really in our corner in the Turner hierarchy. And that really concerned me. It really did. It always concerned me what's going on above us with Turner. You know, I've said bad things about Turner broadcasting, not necessarily about the people who were involved, uh, like Brad Siegel, uh, Harvey Schiller, uh, Jim Hurd, but about the actual, uh, uh, the actual setup of the company. I remember a time and this told me all I needed to know. And I'm thinking about it. It's around this time. I'm not so sure who we met with, but you know, uh, Eric, uh, was no longer in charge of the company and, and Bill Bush was in charge of the company. And he's the one that brought in Vince Russo and Ed Ferrara from the WWE. And, uh, I, I spent a lot of time with Bill Bush because I thought Bill was a pretty sharp guy and Bill, uh, depended on me for a lot of things. We discussed a lot of things. He had me go to Turner broadcasting, uh, the studios on Techwood drive where they had, uh, their corporate headquarters. Don't know who I met with, but I'm thinking I met with one of the guys who was in charge after Harvey left and they wanted to talk about the direction of WCW, which as we know was going down the shitter. And as we go in there and talk to this guy, the only thing he wanted to talk about was us possibly having a wrestling match in Times Square at Madison Square Garden to get the attention of the media. That was all that he cared about. That, I mean, that, that told me right then that the people in charge of Turner Broadcasting didn't give a shit about us. Uh. They were just looking at hype. And I'm thinking, here we are talking to this big week from Turner, and the only thing he, only thing he thinks we need to do is get a match about it, uh, get a match in Times Square. I'm thinking, whoo, we are slowly running out of time. And actually we were quickly running out of time. I wish I knew who the, that guy's name was, but I remember we walked away. Bill Bush was there too. We were like looking at each other thinking, yeah, we're screwed. Uh, so, um, yeah, when Harvey left, uh, I was really concerned about the direction of the company. Uh, and that little incident I just talked about was one of the reasons why they were fucked up, man. I don't, I don't see how they're still in business. I really don't. Well, um, let's talk about Russo for a minute because you just mentioned that Bush brings Russo in. When do you first hear about it and how is that news received? And it's easy in hindsight as wrestling fans in 2017 to say, oh, you had to think this was the worst idea ever, but that's not the way it was received at the time. At least from my perspective, this felt like a major blow and a major loss to the WWE and a huge plus for WCW. Is that the same way you felt about it at the time? There was no question. We were uh, pretty excited. I was pretty excited because of what they had been doing with the WWE, because of uh, the creativity they had over there. I saw this very much uh, kind of like, you know, we were we were taking their talent like Hall and Nash and, and Roddy Piper and, and some of the big names on the front lines that the fans saw. Now we were getting some of their big wigs from, from their office, from behind the scenes, which sometimes is even more crucial. You know, I mean, you had all these stars before, but didn't really know what to do with them sometimes. And now if you've got 
a creative genius, which was certainly the reputation that Russo had at the time. Um, and that's not to say he didn't have good ideas, but you know what I mean? Everybody sure. was kind of saying, oh, this is the guy from Austin and rock and mankind and triple H and the undertaker and all this attitude era stuff. He's our guy, which makes this even more interesting. Uh, Meltzer would write, there was a meeting called before the October 25th nitro where Bill Bush talked about having major problems with standards and practices. Uh, Bush said from this point on, there could be no more referee bumps without authorization and that there would be no more juicing or swearing on television without authorization and that no male could grab or hit a woman unless it was in the context of a match. Do you remember this meeting and, and how was it received? Because it feels like this comes right after Russo comes in and this is just, wow, the worst possible timing for his style of writing. No question. And we all, uh, again, it goes back to the leadership at WCW. You know, we, they had a, uh, they had a person, sometimes two of them that they brought in. I mentioned it before in one of these episodes, they had a person that traveled with us who was the person that we had to, Vince had to bounce everything off of before we could uh, get it cleared on TV. It was our, we called him our sensor guy, a standards and practices guy. And he traveled and he was involved in anything and everything. There was a lot of times Vince came up with stuff that he talked about in the meeting that never took place because it didn't get approved. Uh, so there was no question that they brought this guy, Vince Russo in and Ed Farrar in guys who were very creative. And then they kind of put handcuffs on them immediately by all the standards and practices stuff. Uh, again, it's very apparent if you go back and connect the dots that there were people higher up who were trying to squeeze out wrestling, I think, from Turner Broadcasting. Well, Mayhem 99 here is a heavyweight tournament to determine a new champion. And this happens because at the prior pay-per-view, Halloween Havoc, um, and I guess technically that was the first pay-per-view written by Russo, um, the title was abandoned when Hogan laid down to a heel sting and then sting lost his new title after attacking the referee, Charles Robinson, uh, who then handed the belt to bill Goldberg. So this is just a big convoluted mess. And the next night on nitro JJ Dillon announces that the title will be held up and there will be a new world heavyweight champion crowned in a new tournament. Um, how different was the business when you had a pay-per-view like this, where a world title change happens twice on the same show. It's a little different from the old Jim Crockett promotion days. Oh my gosh. It, it's, it's completely different. Every, everything has changed. Uh, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, Conrad, uh, the, the business had changed, uh, and now, uh, in the, in the backstage area, uh, we were, uh, we were much more organized as a company and that's what kind of is, it pulls me. Uh, I feel like I'm an old school guy. And some of the stuff that's going on and some of the stuff we're going to talk about in this pay-per-view would have never happened at Jim Crockett promotions. The flip side is we were more seemingly more organized in the backstage area than ever before because of Russo and Ed and their creativity and their sense of organization. Well, you know, that, that is something that not a lot of people talk about. So kudos to you for mentioning that because. We always hear that WCW was this big mess and that Russo had all these terrible, crazy ideas, but the idea that they brought a sense of professionalism and organization, uh, is a breath of fresh air. Um, yeah. let me say this when Vince Russo had his first meeting ever, it reminded me 
of the meetings that we used to have with Vince McMahon when I was with the WWE for that one year. Vince ran the meetings and laid out the entire show and communicated with the right people. And now Russo would run these meetings that to me were like a breath of fresh air. They were not confusing. They knew what they were. They, they, I always thought that, and I always thought Vince was good about this. And Russo was good about this too. Not everything was going to work and not everything was organized and not everybody was on the same page, but when they held their meetings, it appeared that way. It made you think that the people running the show knew what they were talking about when maybe they didn't always know what they were talking about. And I, and I learned a lot from working with the WWE and even working with Vince on that line that maybe that as a company or as a creative uh, body, we're, we are, we're not all together on everything, but it appears that we are. And that was always important, I thought, with the boys and with the production part of our company, appearing that everybody was on the same page, appearing that was everything was organized. When you left a Vince Russo meeting and an Ed Ferrar meeting uh, during the day, you got a sense that, man, we're moving in the right direction. Maybe everything didn't work, but at least they were on top of things. We never had that before they got there. Well, um, not everything is clicking on all cylinders here. We yeah. have a heel sting. I don't think that ever really worked. Would you agree with no. that? Yeah, that didn't work. A lot of things didn't work. You um, know what, what? Watching the show just uh, confirmed what I always thought about that era and our demise. We became, because this is what Vince Russo knew, we became a bastardized version of the WWE, don't you think? Well, some of the production is what stands out to me. And Meltzer wrote about it. Um, he's covering the November 1st Nitro from Minneapolis. It drew 6,600 paying fans uh, who shelled out $186,000 at the gate. Uh, but he also wrote from a booking standpoint, this was the best Nitro in a long time. The three hours didn't seem too long. Uh, but he would continue talking about the kid cam, which was Kidman's video camera. And he was spying on Luger and Liz with the idea that Liz was changing. She wasn't, of course, Luger was just pumping up. Uh, Meltzer would write, this was a production nightmare. The video and audio were way off track. It looked like one of those seventies Kung Fu movies dubbed into English. They don't know how to edit because when it was over, you could see one cameraman filming the sound guy with the boom mic underneath. Kidman and them yelling, cut, that's a wrap. They also held the camera on list where she dropped character, started laughing and drinking a soda. At first, I thought they were trying to spoof wrestling angles by showing it was an angle, but that wasn't the case. The next miscue saw the director actually giving Sting and Luger a countdown for another pre-tape. Um, mm. What do you think about these production miscues? Do you remember these at all? Or is this all just kind of a blur at this point? Well, there, there's a lot of it that's a blur, but I remember some of these, and I remember some of these being because, not trying to make an excuse for everybody, but they had not done so much pre-production on a Nitro uh, prior to this. When Russo and Ed came in, we did a lot more backstage stuff, and so there was a lot more things going on. So a lot of times trying to get the guys ready. Sometimes it's a, it's a logistic nightmare. You know, are the guys here? Are they ready to go? Uh, are they eating? Are they, you know, because they fed everybody, uh, have they left? Have they come back? And the agents got to round these guys up. And now all of a sudden it's getting closer to airtime and close to airtime and they're rushing to get things in. 
I don't think the production crew was ready for all that Russo and Ferrara had planned for our show. I'm not making an excuse for him, but that's the way it was. And sometimes things got rushed on the air. And there, as you were just talking about, you saw a result of that. It got to be a, a, a lot of times very fucked up. And because of it, I, as a person, tried to re remove myself from it because I didn't want to, I didn't think it was good for me as a play-by-play -play guy, as an announcer, to get involved with all the backstage stuff going on, the craziness, in trying to do a, a broadcast that night. So I kind of removed myself from it a lot. I, uh, I went into solitary confinement a lot of times during the day. Well, Harvey Schiller is in uh, solitary confinement now working with the Yankees and he is replaced by Brad Siegel. Uh, he is now going to be tasked with overseeing WCW. Uh, his official title is president of general entertainment networks for Turner broadcasting. How was this received? How, how was Brad Siegel perceived by the boys, the office and you personally? Me personally, uh, because Brad was one of the real stars of Turner Broadcasting and was pretty much a hands-on guy, and I knew Brad and got to talk to him many times, I felt pretty confident about that, that Brad really cared about what we were doing. Uh, and But in effect, I guess he really didn't. Uh, but I talked to Brad a lot, so I had no problem with it. You know, uh, if, you, if you take a look at the long line of people, uh, Harvey Schiller... Uh, was a very demanding guy, but Harvey kind of let us do our thing. Uh, I thought uh, Brad would be much the same way, but that apparently was not the case. Terry Taylor was hired to be in booking, and uh, Meltzer would write, the only reason he left WCW in the first place was because he was Bischoff's whipping boy, which is a moot point now, and because mm -hmm. Bischoff blew up at him when rumors surfaced he was about to make a move to the WWF. Does Meltzer have that classification close to accurate that Terry Taylor was perceived as being Bischoff's whipping boy? No, I think a lot of us were Bischoff's whipping boy. Eric, uh, Eric, uh, drove a lot of people pretty hard. I was one of them and, and Eric was, was never the one to, and I don't see anything wrong with this. I never had a problem with it. Eric was never the one to, if he had a problem with you to take you back and close the door and give you shit, he would give you shit in public. He would give you shit at, at a production meeting. Terry was one of those guys. I got Eric's wrath sometimes as well. That's how Eric was. Was he Eric's whipping boy? Eric, Eric drove, Eric got on him a lot. I don't think there's any question. And, and Terry could take it. Uh, Dusty Rhodes is said to no longer be with the company. This is from the observer. The story is that Rhodes made a play for Russo's spot, which failed and he quit on November 1st. After Russo had nixed the idea for Dustin Rhodes' gimmick, uh, which was a cross between The Undertaker and Goldust, it was proposed that Rhodes do an angle with his father, playing off their legitimate background problems. Dusty supposedly wanted no part of it, and by the afternoon of the 8th, the general feeling in the company was once the script got out, it was regarded as Dustin Rhodes' interview on Nitro and how he was going to bring up the heartless powers that would be firing his father after 25 years in the business most believe now that this dusty quitting is just another Hogan-esque work. So they're referencing how they're doing a work shoot brother and trying to work the boys. Did you hear that dusty had blown up and quit over 
not being able to get Russo's spot and allegedly being asked to do some sort of storyline playing off he and Dustin's real life problems? Or did you know that was a work? I knew it was a work. I kind of right. I didn't believe anything. <laughs> I, I didn't. I, I, to this day, the, the, the Hogan thing, uh, you know, and the Russo thing going out and calling Hogan a piece of shit. I didn't believe that. And I got some heat from Vince from that, from Vince Russo from that. I didn't believe anything at all. I thought everything was a work, especially when Vince was in, when Russo was in, because they tried to work the boys so much. And I just was immune to that stuff. So anytime I heard anything like that, I went, yeah, bullshit. So I always called bullshit on, I call bullshit on this. Uh, just that was the, the way they operated back then. Somehow the New York post runs an article, uh, saying that, uh, the wrestling writers have increased nitro's audience by nearly 25%. And they're giving this credit, of course, to Russo and Ed, uh, Meltzer would write, that's a misleading stat. If I've ever, ever heard one, uh, and he's referencing, um, in this article, this interview Russo is that right now the masses don't want family entertainment guys love TNA. They want attitude. Um, Meltzer would also cover the November 8th show in Indianapolis. They drew 8,100 folks paying $231,000. He would write, it was by far the worst Nitro since Nash was Booker. We've talked about this briefly, but how would you compare Kevin Nash's booking style to, say, an old school Kevin Sullivan? I thought uh, Kevin Nash was a little bit more edgy than, than Kevin Sullivan. Kevin was a little bit more old school and Nash was maybe a little bit more. And, and it, it all, you know, Nash had, had spent a lot of time in the WWE. So he came from that, from that school. So I, I feel his booking was a lot more edgy than Kevin Sullivan. Kevin was very old school. <laughs> I say that. And then of course there's the, the dungeon of doom and, and the taskmaster and all that stuff. But, but it was, that, that's kind of old school in and of itself though. Well, yeah, of course it is. It's just over the top campy, but that's what Hogan needed at the time. You know, that was very, uh, familiar territory for Hogan. Let's talk about this Sid interview that lots of people have played over the years and had fun with. You've got Hall and Nash in the ring and they're kind of mocking Sid to the point where they've got Kevin and all the makeup. Sid comes out to do a promo and kind of bumbles the lines and says something like, I've got half the brain you do. (laughs) and this thing gets played over and over and over. He was supposed to say something like, I I have the brain of a psychopath, but instead he says, I have half the brain you do. And this leads Hall and Nash to just continue to just belly laugh over this. Um, doesn't this booking make this heel monster look like a buffoon and not necessarily in a good way. Yeah, it it does. And you're exactly right. It, but uh, the other side of that Hall and Nash were just so cool and anything they did was so hip that maybe I might get some heat about this, but maybe in itself, it worked for what they wanted. Well, let's talk about the grand wizard of wrestling because Nash decided on an episode of nitro here to dress up like him and, yeah. uh, Meltzer would write, he sounded nothing like him and acted gay considering that Ernie Roth died before most of the 40 year olds in this business even started. And that outside the Northeast, the wizard never appeared anywhere. Uh, and that except for a few people who have worked within the last 15 years, nobody knew he was gay. 
what did you think of Kevin Nash and his depiction of the Grand Wizard of Wrestling? This seems like way out of place. What was the point? Uh, the point was to come up with something different. Uh, I, I appreciate Dave Meltzer knowing what gay sounds like. Mm. Uh, I'm not so sure I always do. Uh, and of course, Dave knows more about the grand wizard than all of us combined. Apparently, uh, I, uh, to me, it was just another one of those, uh, Kevin Nash things where he was trying to be entertaining a reverend. And let me say Meltzer's right about this. It went over everybody's head that didn't know the grand wizard, but for the guys like us who, you know, knew about old school and old time wrestling, we kind of got it that he was trying to be the grand wizard. Um, what did you think about, uh, the time that Dustin Rhodes came out and he came out in a gimmick? Uh, they, they described this as kind of a, a cross between Goldust and undertaker Meltzer would write, he arrived on a zip line and then said it was a stupid gimmick. The creative team had came up with that. He's his own man. And he talked about how the Goldust character had almost ruined his career. what did you think of this? It feels I mean, I can't imagine this happening 10 years prior to this. Can you? No. Uh, again, it's one of those things to where they're trying to blur the line between wrestling and what is real and making the fans feel that, you know, we're kind of getting a backstage look and a glimpse look into what goes on behind the stage and trying to get a, a look at to what these guys really feel, what these guys are really thinking, that these guys are doing things on their own now away from the script. That was part of the plan back then. It was odd. It really was. Meltzer wrote that he thought a lot of the signs from the November 8th Nitro were planted. He says that it was the similar handwriting throughout. Uh, I hadn't heard of this, but do you remember there ever being a time where you guys were planting signs in the audience? If they did, they never told me about it. There was, there was, a, there was an effort to get rid of a lot of signs uh, because of some of the signs were very, you know, uh, Sure. Very profane. Sure. So, well, so well, I, I, I saw, I heard it was the other way. Uh, Meltzer also wrote something I'd never heard around this time. The idea of a one hour, one hour of the Saturday night show being a comedy hour starring Hall Nash and Mark Madden is looking stronger as there are meetings scheduled to flush out the concept. Do you remember kicking around the idea that WCW Saturday night, at least one hour of it could just be comedy with Hall Nash and Madden? No, that's people feeding Meltzer a shit. Okay. Roll tight on that. Uh, creative control is a set of characters that you're going to see on this show. They were, uh, essentially Gerald and Patrick, and this is kind of tongue in cheek to McMahon's stooges like Gerald Briscoe and Pat Patterson. Yeah. Um, when you see the, the guys kind of rank this kind of off camera, situation, creative control, standards and practices, all that type of stuff, an on-camera thing. I think that's kind of smart. But what did you think about the idea to name the characters Gerald and Patrick? To me, it was just in line with uh, with naming uh, uh, our naming of Vincent. I knew you were going to say that. That makes me happy. <laughs> I mean, isn't it? It's It's one of those ribs towards Vince. And, you know, there's a lot of people who feel, and there's sometimes I thought this, you know, leave that shit alone, you know, go your own direction. But, uh, yeah, Patrick and Gerald, which is another, uh, play on words, so to speak. 
Let's uh, briefly touch on this. I know you weren't there, but it was a big deal in the business. On November 6th at a Kid Rock concert in Tampa, uh, Randy Savage and uh, Road Warrior Hawk got into a physical incident. Uh, Do you remember hearing about this? No, not at all. You didn't hear about this? I did not. Okay. Well, there's no sense in discussing it, but essentially um, these guys punched each other and we're not pleased with each other. And it all happened at a kid rock concert, but really? if you weren't there, no sense in digging in. Yeah. Um, okay. I, I loved Savage, but road warrior Hawk was a, a legit badass man. No, I would have not screwed it. around with him. I, I can't imagine anybody wanting to screw around with either one. Okay. Uh, let's talk about the pay-per-view. That's what we're here for. WCW mayhem. The readers of the observer gave it 21% thumbs up 66.9% thumbs down and 12.1% thumbs in the middle. Uh, Meltzer said it could best be described as a weird show. Uh, would you say thumbs up, thumbs down? And how would you agree with Meltzer's classification that this is a weird show? I agree with that classification. I give it thumbs down. There were some good things about it, like the first match. Uh, but there were some very, very bad things about it too. Um, like the, uh, Vampiro Berlin match, which was just absolutely if you can say, go to a match, Tony, and define clusterfuck, that was it in WCW. Uh, and the, uh, the angle with uh, Tony Marinera, it was just, it was, it was all shitty. I mean, it was, it was all shitty. Not only that, you'll notice in this pay-per-view how Gene Okerlund and Mike Tanay doing the interviews in the backstage area never looked at the camera. Remember the old school thing? You used to look at the camera. Yeah. Thank you very much. And we're here talking to Hulk Hogan or whatever. They never looked at the camera. We were told that in reality, and I don't think Vince said this, this may have been, and maybe Vince was behind this. This may have been a production or a Craig Leathers thing that in reality, if we were going backstage, it all should be off the cuff and we shouldn't be looking at the camera. We're trying to present, I don't know, a movie and in a movie, Actors don't look at the camera. So they never looked at the camera. And having Gene Okerlund not look at the camera, that was weird, man. That was really weird. That was just one of the weird things about the show. Well, uh, the WWE has often said that the Canadian crowds are like bizarro because yeah. it's it's like the direct opposite of what you see south of the border here in the United States. Would you classify the fans here as being uh, kind of uh, on their own? Compared to the United States crowds? No question. We had that same thing in Vancouver. Uh, it was, I mean, they, they chanted Goldberg sucks. Goldberg sucks. Where else did you ever hear that? Yeah. Well, everywhere, time. everywhere. Um, Adam, did? <laughs> I'm just being a smart ass. Yeah, uh, Meltzer, really? Meltzer wrote as a live event, the show drew 13,839 fans, roughly 2,200 shy of capacity with 12,000 of them paying 461,000, which is 313,000 in American money. Um, the first time WCW went into Toronto, the building sold out in 15 minutes. And the second show, a pay-per-view where the general buzz was the heart would end up with the title failed to sell out at all. Uh, would you consider this a success? It feels like, you know, at a time when the business is very hot and you've got a Canadian superhero going to win the world title. And last time it sold out in 15 minutes, this feels like a, a bit of a, a miss. Does it not? I don't know. 
that's a pretty good gate. No, for sure. Yeah. I, I mean, we always look at, oh, it sells out immediately and you can't find a ticket. Uh, I'm not so sure it was a miss. You know, there was <laughs> talking about the, the, those Canadian, uh, slap dicks on camera. There was, <laughs> there was one person who held up a sign and I, we used to, you saw it early. I think we got rid of it. And, uh, the sign said, who would buy, who would pay for this? Did you remember seeing well, that? How, how great is that? <laughs> that is great. And I remember seeing that sign thinking you would dumbass because there you are paying for it. Uh, but no, I don't, I don't think it was a miss at all. I think it was a great crowd. It was a great atmosphere. Oh, it was a, a Canadian atmosphere. Uh, so no, I don't think it was a miss. So the gist here is, uh, the first three rounds of this tournament have taken place on WCW TV. And now the semifinal and finals are going to happen on pay-per-view, uh, people who are in this tournament to become world champion included disco Inferno, Stevie Ray, Lash LaRue, Ernest Miller, uh, Evan courageous Medusa, uh, Brian Nobbs, Dean Malenko. Um, Norman Smiley. I mean, so a lot of, a lot of guys who maybe have not previously had world title shots are involved in this. Now you've also got some of the more familiar faces, Bret Hart, Goldberg, Eddie Guerrero, Bam Bam Bigelow, uh, Rick Steiner, DDP, uh, Lex Luger, Sting, Chris Benoit, Scott Hall, Sid Vicious. So lots of stars that you're maybe more familiar with being, uh, here, uh, the first match on the card was Chris Benoit and Jeff Jarrett. Uh, I thought this was a pretty good match. Meltzer kind of agreed. He gave it three and a half stars. And, uh, when I watched this back, it felt like the crowd was super hot. Maybe putting Chris Benoit on first was pretty smart. what do you think about this match? Good move. I agree. And again, and I mentioned earlier, a good match, a, a fine match, Jarrett, a great performer. Uh, and he got busted too and bled a little bit in that one. Uh, and Benoit was super, uh, great first match and great booking to put a Canadian on, uh, first. What, uh, what did you think of Jeff Jarrett's exploding guitar gimmick at this point? It was okay. It, it didn't bother me. It was, it was a gimmick. It was overused, but what the hell, right? Uh, the angle here is that creative control at the behest of the powers that be had a favorite son in Jeff Jarrett, considering right. the real life relationship with Vince and Jarrett. Oh, this was art imitating life, right? Yes, it was. It was uh, art imitating life, which they try to do a lot. The, um, the shot and the way these backstage segments are shot with Vince Russo off camera behind the desk. And you just see what's happening in front. This is a carbon copy of the old Seinfeld skits with Steinbrenner, is it not? Yes, it is. With Steinbrenner and George Costanza. Has anybody ever told you you might be the George Costanza of professional wrestling? I know we always say Bob Saget, but just based on height and your your weird idiosyncrasies, I, I don't know how I didn't put this together. You're Tony Costanza. Really? Yeah. I have weird idi- idiosyncrasies? Yeah. I, I, yeah. Really? I mean, yeah. Okay. You don't think so? Well, I know when I open up my wallet, I have, I don't have bills in there. Like a stanza does. I have all these IOUs, uh, and all these receipts in there. Uh, I guess maybe so. I, you know, I, I thought I always thought I was a pretty damn good guy until I married Lois. And then she kind of drove me down. 
if you reference uh, me needing to go back to the jerk store, then we know for sure that you are Tony Costanza. <laughs> well, then I'll consider that a compliment because I think we all realize George Costanza was one of the greatest characters ever in television, right? Oh my gosh. Absolutely. Yeah. So thank you very much. Uh, before the next, the next match starts, uh, Jarrett beats up disco Inferno until Conan and the misfits break it up. Um, so now we've got Evan courageous challenging for the cruiserweight title with disco Inferno. Medusa comes out with courageous. Let me just ask how hmm. roll tide was Medusa here at mayhem oh. 99. Oh my God. She was, she was voluptuous. She was, I love Medusa. Did I ever tell you that? You have. What, what, okay. what, what are your two favorite things about Medusa? Uh, her, uh, her wit and her charm. She named them wit and charm. <laughs> cool. I, I, know where, I know where you're trying to lead me here. What? Okay. I'm not leading uh, you anywhere. We're just, we're taping my friend. Somebody, uh, somebody had sent to, somebody had sent a picture of her, uh, painted a nude and painted. Red, white, and blue. Yeah, you sent that. You sent that to me. You were really excited about that. Yeah, I sent it to her too. She's seen it. Those they belong to her. Yeah, I know that. Uh, but I sent it to her and I said, "Hey, sweetie, I just thought I'd let you know that I, I I came across this online and I fainted." And she said, "I just want to let you know that is my evil twin. That is not me. But she does not love you as much as I do." Do you think we could book? Uh, for our live show on July 9th, tickets are on sale right now. WHWlive.com. We could get Tony Costanza against the evil twin Medusa in a pudding match. Yeah. Yeah. You're in for I that. Would not, I, I would not be able to come back to Atlanta, but I think we could do that. Atlanta's overrated. Well, yeah, I know it is in, in the, in the age of everybody having their own cell phones and, and little video cameras and, and everything that would end up on the internet and I would be completely, although I would be in, in heaven, I would be completely dead to my home here. You might die of a heart attack anyway. And yeah, one. I might die that, you know, I, I do need to say this. I have my dog bug who I love dearly. And there have been times during the recordings of these that I'm thinking about, I may have to come to the Conradison and live with bug. Cause I'm gonna get my ass thrown out of this house. Thanks to you, my friend. You're welcome. I'm gonna get, that's what friends are for. Uh, so let's talk about this terrible match. We're following it up right after a clinic, essentially with, uh, Jarrett and, uh, Benoit, Tony Marinara uh, was announcing here. Meltzer would write, boy, was he bad. They were mm. missing spot after spot and the fans turned on the match between Medusa looking like an aging movie star who lives at the plastic surgeons, courageous wow. nervousness and Marinara. It was like disco was trying to carry an anchor tied to Yokozuna and he was in fact swimming with the fishes here. Fans were chanting boring heavily. Disco was trying to pick up on Medusa and she gave him a weak slap. Marinara tried to hit on Medusa, but courageous went after him. Disco went to hit courageous with a chair, but accidentally hit Marinara. Courageous used a springboard crossbody, and disco acted like he was going to roll through, but he didn't. And it ended up being what appeared to be a miscommunication screwed up pin. Then Evan started making out with his mom after the match. Uh, negative star. Uh, what'd you think of Meltzer's analysis of the match? And I want to hear any good stories you may have about Evan courageous. 
I think it was negative two stars. I think what he said about Medusa was unkind. He didn't need to say that. I thought she looked great. Uh, did I ever tell you I love Medusa? We've mentioned that before. Yeah, okay. Uh, so that's unkind. But, yeah, Tony Marinara was terrible uh, on Mike. Uh, and I never liked Evan Courageous at all. I, I, I used to call him, and he, I used to, and Ed Farrar used to laugh about this because Evan and I would go back because Evan was kind of, I don't know, kind of mouthy. And uh, I used to call him Nothing Happening Evan Courageous. Oh, wow. Yeah, because I, I didn't, you know, I knew he, I knew he was a, I guess he was a, a former uh, wrestler, uh, collegiate wrestler, uh, but I, I didn't like anything he did. I, I just, I, I didn't, I think that you get a guy like this who is, who does not know that much about pro wrestling and you put him in a match where you got to go out and you got to, and this happened a lot and you got to choreograph all this shit because a lot of this stuff was, was overly choreographed in the ring. If they miss one spot, the whole match looks like shit. So the match looked like shit. What was going on on the outside looked like shit. The whole thing was shit. We need a shirt that says the whole thing was shit. I don't the know why. The whole thing was shit. What was not is the next match to me. And somebody tweeted me and said, this is the worst match in WCW history. I totally disagree. It's Norman Smiley uh, beating Brian Nobbs to win the vacant hardcore title. Uh, Smiley came out dressed up as a goalkeeper for the Toronto Maple Leafs just to make sure everybody in the crowd knew he was a face. He's doing his screaming, crying routine after Nobbs removes his mask and begins pounding on him with a garbage can. Uh, Smiley then comes back with garbage can shots of his own, and the fans booed some of these terrible garbage can shots that Smiley was trying to deliver. Uh, but then he hit him hard enough with the second shot that the fans were back into it. Meltzer would write, Nobbs nearly killed him with the return garbage can shot. Uh, they went backstage with more broom and garbage can stuff. It was the basic hardcore match backstage. And then they wound up brawling in an elevator and the door closed. Uh, for some reason, I thought that was hilarious. That's Meltzer saying it and me co-signing it because when the door closed on the elevator, it was the highlight of the show up until this point to me. Uh, Jimmy Hart pushed the uh, elevator button and the door opened. He goes to hit Smiley with a garbage can, but he hits Nobbs instead and Smiley pins him. After the match, Nobbs attacked both Smiley and Hart, and Smiley uh, threw the most lethal-looking loafs of hamburger buns ever made in the city of Toronto. Two stars. This is very wrestle crap, but it's fun for what it was. I dug it. I thought the elevator booking here was genius. What do you think, Tony? I thought it was genius, too. I thought when it happened, <laughs> when the elevator door closed, I remember thinking, shit, they're going to go up to another level, and we're going to be fucked here because we're not going to be able to get a finish in, but it opened up and they were able to do the finish right there at the elevator. So I thought the elevator opening back up and the finish was very good. Uh, here's one thing I want to, I want to bring up about that match as it relates to WCW going belly up. The fight went in the backstage area and you saw all those hamburger buns or hot dog buns get destroyed you know, they're not that, that was, if that was a gimmick, in other words, if we strategically put those buns there, we had to pay for them. And if you'll recall on the angles for David Flair leading up, he took a crowbar to a car. 
we did a lot of crazy shit that cost us a lot of money. Yeah. That wasn't budgeted for. So I just wonder, and, and again, this is me looking at it as, as a person who's maybe I'm not paying the bills, but a person who would have been paying the bills. How much money did we have to pay the Air Canada Center for destroying some of that shit in the back? That's a great we just, call. We actually had Vince Russo on uh, Woo Nation with Ric Flair a few years ago, and he talked about some of the limitations that he was up against in TNA because they didn't have the budget for the stuff that he could do in WCW and the WWF. And he gave the example of getting a tank uh, in the WWF. And I just remember thinking to myself, Hey, I don't remember seeing a tank ever on Jim Crockett promotions. So I don't think that was necessary to draw ratings and houses and interest to your product. And you can see here, you're exactly right. There was lots of what I would call frivolous spending that I think really only happens when the person making the decision isn't directly affected financially. You know, if Vince is destroying a Corvette, that's, that's how to Vince's end. Um, Vince being McMahon, but if Russo's doing it, you know, well, there's just a bill that somebody else pays and, and that's not a slight against Russo. It is just relevant to the story of why it happens in some places and not so much in others. Wouldn't you agree, Tony? Oh yeah. It, uh, there was a time, I don't know what show it was. They destroyed a limousine completely destroyed. You had to buy that limousine. Yeah. And there was a lot, and you know, who was responsible to get all this Shit, David Crockett was, uh, it probably is worth to talk to David Crockett sometime about this. Uh, but, and sometimes he didn't know about destroying a limousine or destroying a car or doing things like that in the backstage area until the day of. And so they were scrambling to get things together. Uh, and that's one of the things that led to our downfall. We were just spending money right out the ass. And it's worth mentioning the WWF did a lot of that same stuff too. I know there's somebody out there going to tweet us and say, well, WWF did this. Yes. They had the money to do so. The difference being WCW is losing cash here. The WWF was still way, way, way profitable. So if you're very profitable, you can afford to do these things. If you're running at a loss, you can't afford to do these things. It's just simple economics of the deal. Uh, How much did you love? And maybe I'm in the minority here, Tony. I loved Norman Smiley. I thought his screaming Norman gimmick was hilarious. I loved the extreme wiggle. I thought all of that was good, funny stuff. And and I think Brian Nobbs is one of the more underrated guys in the business. what did you think of those two as individual performers? Brian Nobbs, one of the, absolutely one of the most underrated guys in the business. And really, uh, one of the funniest guys away from the camera ever. Uh, he can be overbearing. Uh, and, and Norman was a pro. Norman would do anything you ask of him. Uh, so I like Norman a lot too. Liked them both. Uh, this is one of the few times we saw Jimmy Hart, uh, take bumps at this advanced stage of his career. Uh, was Jimmy doing stuff that wasn't just in front of the camera at this point? Was he still working in the music and all that? Or is some of that kind of went by the wayside? No, he was still working in the music. You, you heard a lot of the music that the guys, the, the buff Bagwell music, uh, the nasty boys music was his music. Uh, a lot of the stuff they did was, was, uh, was Jimmy Hart stuff. You know, Jimmy was based out of Florida, still is, uh, and did a lot of work behind the scenes. He's, he was, Jimmy Hart's an amazing talent. No one realized, I don't think many people realize this. He is much more than just a, a, a gimmick with a megaphone, just an amazing talent. 
hypothetically, if you were going to keep your gimmick going and you had to give somebody a big wiggle, uh, who would you want to give it to? And why would it be Tom Zink? Well, I, I couldn't give Tom a big wiggle. I could give him just a, a small wiggle, an average wiggle. No, a small wiggle. Oh, really? Yes. I think that actually and, makes it more intimate. Well, and that's all I'm going to say about that. You son of a bitch. Uh, we're, next, we're, we're, next up, we've got Perry Saturn and Dane Malenko. Uh, and they actually get the win over. I know this is what we do for a living. Now <laughs> they get their win over Eddie Guerrero and Billy Kidman. Uh, Tori Wilson is on one side and Asia is on the other. This is an elimination match with the men and the women. Um, Meltzer wrote, someone sent me a copy of Christy Wolf's high school yearbook. And in her senior year, she won most masculine. They're mm. trying to give Saturn this comedic personality where everything out of his mouth is nonsense. Your classic goof in a TV ensemble comedy. It's pretty funny. A planted fan dressed as a clown poked Malenko with a flagpole they gave away it was a plant by focusing on the fan running away instead of ignoring it and showing the match. They came back to it later in the show, although nobody was positive for doing so. Uh, Tori Wilson faked an ankle injury as an excuse for her not doing anything. Malenko picked Kidman after three minutes, where Guerrero accidentally shoves Kidman backwards into Malenko's schoolboy, and then Kidman and Guerrero argue uh, after the match. They're shoving each other. And he writes, this is like four months too early for the breakup of the filthy animals. Conan also walked out, although nothing was ever explained about that. Fans popped for Asia, giving Guerrero a vertical suplex. Guerrero pinned Malenko in five minutes after Hurricane Rana. And then Guerrero pinned Asia after six and a half minutes with a frog splash. The sound guy accidentally played the filthy animals music to make people think it was a mistake. But at the end, they were going over. Uh, this left Guerrero Saturn for several minutes, and they were very good. Guerrero hit Saturn with a drop kick off a springboard cross body attempt, and then Guerrero got a near fall with a tornado DDT. Saturn gave a near fall with the Death Valley driver, and then missed an elbow off the top before Guerrero hit a sloppy Hurricane Rana. Uh, Guerrero comes off the top with a splash, but Saturn rolls through and gets the rings of Saturn for the submission after 10 minutes. Uh, this leaves Saturn and Wilson. Wilson gives Saturn a low blow, but he kicks out. And then Saturn gives Wilson a low blow, but she didn't wow. kick out yeah. two and a half stars. This to me, uh, I can't believe this got two and a half stars because of the ridiculousness of it being mixed with men and women and a low blow on a woman being the finish, uh, a frog splash on a lady here, lots of stuff I didn't expect to see, but when you read some of this stuff, like. Christy Wolf's high school yearbook, and in her senior year, she won most masculine. That's not a good look for Mr. Meltzer. That doesn't age well. No, no, that's not. Christy, Christy was a great guy. Wow, I can't believe you said Christy was a great guy. Why are you piling on? She's a nice lady. I'm not piling on. Christy, you know, Dale Torborg is a friend of mine, and uh, they have a nice family. She was a great guy. You know what I didn't like about this? And again, it goes back to me saying that we were, we were trying to b become like a, uh, a carbon copy and a bastardized version of the WWE. She's a knockoff of China. Yeah. With the name Asia, come on, Asia, China, come on. You know, it's just to, to me that that just smacked of us trying to be WWF ish. Well, so were Gerald and Patrick. Yes. Of and, course. It and, all, all kind of was together. She was a. She was pretty tough. I mean, she legit was pretty tough. 
but a, a very nice lady. And uh, that was a very bad thing for Melcher to say, but it's easy for him to say shit like that because he was back then behind a typewriter and a word processor and didn't have to face the boys. Let's do word association just real quick. Uh, okay. word association with all the characters here involved in the match. Perry Saturn. Great performer. D- Dean Malenko. Uh, funny guy. Asia. A nice lady. Eddie Guerrero. One of the great performers of all time. Billy Kidman. Billy was pretty good. Tori Wilson. Hmm. I was, mm. I was looking for roll tide, but we will also accept. Mm. <laughs> mm. Remember the Tori Wilson fat suit stuff that we did with her. It's just, I want to forget <laughs> it. Uh, Jeff Jarrett and, uh, control <laughs> beat up Bagwell and then Kurt, uh, which really makes no logical sense. If you think about the purpose of it, uh, were you ever as an announcer confused or behind as these characters start to turn and flip flop back and forth between baby face and heel and some of their yeah. actions that are kind of hard to follow. Yeah. Because in the, in the stuff that we had to get together a lot, uh, we had to get together, uh, in other words, trying to load all that shit into a, into an afternoon. There's a lot of times that things happen that I was not aware of. Sometimes it's because that Vince, uh, and Ed wanted my natural reaction. Sometimes that they just forgot to tell me. Next up, we've got Buff Bagwell pinning Kurt Henning in seven minutes and 47 seconds uh, with creative control and Jeff Jarrett baiting on Henning in the ring. Bagwell made the save with a two by four. Very little heat. Uh, Meltzer would write Heenan made his lone funny comment of the show oh. saying that pro wrestling was Henning's life. But if Bagwell lost, he could always go back to being a male dancer. What did you think of that line? I thought it was funny. But I don't think it was the only funny comment that Heenan had during the show. I think some of the Heenan stuff, as bad as Tony Marinara was, some of the reaction uh, that Heenan had to Tony Marinara talking about the big guy or his father was pretty funny as well. Uh, The fans start to chant boring here. Um, They go into long sleeper spots, which don't really work for the audience. And they do look like what uh, smart fans would call rest holds. Uh, when Bagwell shook his hand, uh, for the easy pop for the big recovery, they forgot to wake the audience up. That's Melzer's testimony. Uh, he also says Bagwell won clean with a blockbuster and for his efforts got booed out of the building. Obviously Mr. Perfect was over like Rover here. And let's not forget, this is for Kurt Henning's career. Uh, Henning got a huge ovation. Uh, I guess for stinking the place out and his supposed final match of his career. That's what Meltzer writes. And he gives the match a quarter star. Mm. Uh, I think a lot of fans in the building really did think, Hey, this is Kurt Henning's last match of his career. We just saw the end of one of our iconic favorite wrestlers. We grew up on Mr. Perfect. And if that was it, they rise to their feet and, and give him the respect he deserves. What, what do you think of this? Uh, yeah, a couple of things. I'm not so sure they thought that. I just think they were applauding this. Look, Canada is WWF territory, right? right? No question. And here we were a Southern company in Canada. I think the WWF guys were big time over like Kurt Hennig, like Bret Hart. And I think they were just giving them their due. I think the, the chant of Goldberg sucks. 
was a direct reflection on our company, our Southern company, trying to go to Canada. And I, I think they were just cheering him uh, because of his uh, being a Mr. Perfect in his WWE days. That's, that's what I think. I think it was very much, I think we were very much deep in the WWF territory, and I think some of the reactions showed that. What did you think of the match itself? Meltzer gave it a quarter star. You know what bothered me about that match? What? Is that when Buff won, what did he first do? He mugged into the camera and started talking. He would always do that. And I told him, I said, Buff, if you're, and again, you know, I know we've really blurred the lines here between reality and fantasy, but to me, if you're in a tough match against Mr. Perfect, Kurt Hennig, and you want to make him seem like it's a big win, and you're you've you you've you're selling and you're winded. Don't mug and talk to the camera right after the one two three. Right. I, I just I thought that was bullshit, and I always thought. And Buff was not the only one that did that. A lot of guys did that. You Don't, didn't like it when Booker T did it either. No, no. Booker T would do it coming to the ring. I never had a problem with that. I thought it was too much of it, but I really had a problem with him talking right as soon as the match was over. I just thought, I, I thought that that was, that was almost to me trying to kick out after the three count. Now let's, uh, pretend that their careers started and ended in WCW. Uh, who had a better career in WCW buff Bagwell or Kurt Henning? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I guess buff Bagwell did. I think he's gotta be the answer there. And I know yeah. that's not going to be the most popular answer when you, when you include Mr. Perfect, certainly you probably get a different answer, but, uh, I thought buff was a much bigger contributor to WCW here. And it's kind of, um, I don't know. I think he gets a bad rap. I think he contributed a lot of stuff to WCW. Let's move on to the next match. We've got two guys, uh, in a match here that we covered last week on Halloween Havoc 98. They're back at it again, Bret Hart and sting. It's the sharpshooter versus the scorpion Deathlock. This is, uh, one of the tournament semifinals. They go nine and a half minutes. Meltzer would write sting wore a t-shirt to hide his physique. And for the first time, probably in his career, his arm looks more flabby than muscular. That's not a steroid reference as you don't need steroids to maintain some muscle tone. Even at 40, not much to the match Hart came off the top rope with a double sledge, but sting put Mickey J in the way Luger and Liz ran in and Luger hit sting in the knee with a baseball bat. Hart saves Sting by giving Luger a low blow. Hart then puts Luger in the sharpshooter, and Luger is tapping all over the place. Jay raised Hart's hand but refused the win because he says he didn't want to win that way. They restarted the match. Sting got the scorpion in the middle, but Hart reversed it into his own sharpshooter, and this time Sting tapped out. Heenan claimed this was the greatest match of Hart's career. They really don't get why Jim Ross is considered the best announcer in the business because he'd never say anything quite that stupid. Both guys <laughs> hugged after the match, two stars. What do you think of the match? And what do you think of Meltzer's description of the match? Uh, the match was okay. You know, we're, we're going for the Canadian pop there. Obviously sting did the job and uh, the match was okay. And, you know, if you think about the last time you and I talked about sting and Bret Hart, it's a much different scenario there. Uh, you know, I, I, I listened to the commentary and, and I know I, I overhype shit, uh, way overhype shit, but I don't, did I, I didn't say, uh, this is the greatest night in the history of our sport hardly at all during that match. Did I? 
or during that night? Man, uh, even when I watched it this week, I had to mute it. I just, I could not listen to your commentary. I mean, it's clear that you suck and you've given up and you told us last week it was over. So I tried to watch with the sound down this week. Really? No, I'm just being smart. Ass. Yeah. Well, you know what? Go fuck yourself. How does that sound? <laughs> You just said last week you thought it was terrible, and this is well, like when you started to phone it in. It was terrible. The commentary was terrible, and yeah, we did did overhype shit. And I re- I remember that line that he said it was maybe the greatest uh, match of Bret Hart's career. Uh, but we were trying to uh, we were trying to dig out of a hole here. What did you think of Sting wrestling in a T-shirt? It didn't bother me. It didn't bother me at all. Um, Maybe he is hiding his physique, but you know, it didn't bother me. You thought the match you know, was, you know why, uh, you know why Meltzer kind of ripped on Sting's physique right there? Why? Because Sting is probably not one of the guys that called him on a regular basis. Oh, for sure. He didn't. Sting didn't yeah. care. Sting didn't yeah. care. Right. Um, Bret Hart cared a lot. Um, mm. how would you classify you worked with both guys? What would you say were the differences what did they have in common what did they have alike bret hart and sting two guys who a lot of wrestling fans would compare uh, because of their finishing moves because of their position on the cards um it's and, and both kind of perennial baby faces how would you compare sting and bret hart behind the scenes i was a lot closer to the sting because you know i was there at the beginning so sting and i talked a lot about other things family, kids, uh, what's going on in the world. And sting was, was, was just a regular guy behind the scenes. He really was. I remember we were at a, uh, we were on the bruise cruise in 1990 or 1991 early on when I came back WCW and you know, they had these variety shows on a cruise. Sometimes they'll have stand up comedians and they'll have variety shows and and, uh, Lois and I were there with, with sting and his, and I think his wife was there. Yeah. His wife was there. We had families there and they had these clowns come out and do these acts where they would duck blows and, you know, you know, swing and miss three stooges type stuff. And sting looked at me deadpan. He said, those son of a bitches are doing my spots, which made me laugh. Uh, Bret Hart on the other hand, didn't get no bread at all. he going to be honest with you. I don't think Brett and I said two words, each other. We always said, hello. We always smiled, uh, would shake hands, but never had a conversation. He was much more reserved and much more within himself than sting was. Don't think Brett was a bad guy. He just wasn't a personable guy to me like sting was. And again, it comes from the fact that sting and I, you know, had been around together for a long time. I, I knew Brett a very short period of time in the WWE uh, but yeah, he was kind of quiet. Meltzer writes that next up Benoit does a really cool old style sports interview, trying to get the main event over as something that meant something. Uh, it would have worked had they booked the match in a way where it just blended into the show. Luger then came out wearing a cervical collar because you know, the sharpshooter does tremendous damage to the throat. Uh, that's all directly from the wrestling observer newsletter match number seven on the card. Vampiro beat Berlin in just under five minutes and what was billed as a chain match. Meltzer writes, it turned out to be the rules of a dog collar match and actually was just an enormous clusterfuck as a backdrop for the Ed Ferrara and Steve Williams angle to mock Jim Ross. 
The first time it was hilarious as the Ross imitation, but ruined by the bad taste of making someone's making fun of someone's Bell's palsy. It's actually the worst of taste because Ross contracted Bell's palsy right after getting the news that his mother died. And to make fun of that is pretty sick, even in a mean spirited wrestling war. This was your one note joke being stretched far too far with nothing left. It appears the writers get off on this since Ferrar's TV character was given a name, Oklahoma. Vampiro came out with Jerry only of the rock band, the misfits, no heat at all. It was less a dog collar match than a mishmash. Eventually the wall killed only, and then choke slam Vampiro. When the wall went for the pin and the match he wasn't in Berlin broke it up. Apparently Vampiro injured or perhaps even broke two ribs on that one because he was clumsily dropped. He worked nitro, but was supposed to get x-rays later in the week. Wall got mad, took the dog collar off and gave it to Berlin and then walked off. Tony Schiavone paying so much attention to the match, then noted how Berlin had walked off. By this point, fans were chanting boring. Vampiro ended up winning a submission with a camel clutch using the chain. And after the match, Williams hit the ring and killed Vampiro with an overhead suplex killed only who was already dead once from the wall with an Oklahoma stampede. And then finally gave Vampiro the doctor bomb negative one star. So we'll come back to the silly character. What did you think of the actual match itself with Vampiro in Berlin? Negative 10 stars. I like how, how Meltzer uh, makes it a point to highlight my mistakes. Really made it a point to do that. I wonder why he did that. Well, he did. I wonder why he would make it a point to highlight my mistake. Because you didn't call and give him the scoop. Exactly. Um, what do you think um, of Oklahoma? It was, ter- it was absolutely terrible. Uh, as far as the Oklahoma character is concerned, I thought the funny, entertaining part of it was him screaming Vampiro's name. Sure. And now, now for those of you who haven't seen this, and we do encourage you to watch these shows, apparently we're, we're more over than two Oh five live. So get the network and go, go watch mayhem 99. Uh, and that's not rumor and innuendo. That's straight from the horse's mouth. The horse being Dave Meltzer, of course. Um, anyway, on this show, people always talk about them mocking the bell's palsy and had he not um, contorted his face to mock the Bell's palsy. And he instead just wore the hat and carried barbecue sauce and carried Dr. Death around and just yelled the same thing over and over and over and over. It would have been hilarious, but by adding that one thing of, you know, trying to make his face contort a little bit, it goes way off into the bad taste territory. Wouldn't you agree, Tony? Yeah, and it was a very awkward thing for me and Heenan to do, to be there and try to put that over. Would you classify yourself and Heenan as being friends with Jim Ross? Oh, yeah. Did no you- question. We both work with him. And, uh, I mean, go back to the go back to the before 1999 and see how much Jim Ross and I did together. Jim Ross and I were roommates. We, we traveled together. So, yeah, we were good friends. Uh, but, again, as a... As a good soldier, you did what you were told. So did you have a conversation with Ross before this happens? Did you give no. him a heads up? Did not. Are you kind of a I didn't, sh- I didn't really know. shithead I didn't for re- not doing listen, that? I didn't really know what they were going to do. So, you, so you, knew there was a, you knew there was going to be a spoof, but you didn't know they were going to take right. it this far. Right. Listen, I, I, think it, I think this may be an extension of, 
You have to talk to Ed about it. You have to get the, the word from Vince for sure. But I think Vince Russo and Ed and Jr. had a lot of heat with each other. And I think this was an extension of that. Even if it is like, you know, as I just ran through, you know, him, him playing the, the stocky black shirt, black hat, barbecue, shilling, Dr. Death and toe vampiro, vampiro, vampiro. That's hilarious. I think yes, everybody could get behind that. Okay. It's just, you know, we're having fun, but when you mock someone's physical situation, a medical condition, it's just, this is awful. This is the worst of WCW to me. It's one of the worst. There's no question. Uh, and I hate to say that because I love Ed Ferrara. You know, Ed. Yeah. He seems uh, like a nice enough guy. One, and one, one of the great guys and one of the most talented writers out there, you know, he and Vince had their problems, Vince Russo and, and Ed left. And I thought it hurt us. Uh, but yeah, I agree with that. They both, but, I know they both regret it now, but, uh, it just seems mean spirited for the, for the sake of being mean spirited. Let's talk about Alex, Wright. Uh, he's of course, one of your favorite wrestlers. Uh, you've yeah. put him over huge, talked about how you and, uh, Jim Barnett used to talk about him like a couple of, uh, eighth grade girls on the phone. Really? And, um, he's not here in his tidy whities He is in pants, which I know you hate right away. Right. Uh, and he's calling himself Berlin and the guy, the, the big massive man with him is the wall. Yeah. So Berlin and the wall are these Terry Taylor ideas. I probably, so let's, let's, let's throw that shit on Terry Taylor. The only good thing about Berlin and the wall was the entrance music from Excalibur movie in 1981. That's the only good thing about it. Once he came out, it was a popcorn fart after that. It was bullshit. You know, I missed the Alex Wright that had the key lime pants on and, you know, had the, uh, you missed Das Wunderkin. Yes. Das Wunderkin. Yeah. I thought it was a, I thought it was a pretty good gimmick because, you know, Alex Wright isn't, is a, I'm not going to say it. Alex Wright is a nice looking young man and to give him this gimmick, I thought was, was bullshit. That's my thought on that. But you know what? And and uh, and uh, credit Vince Russo with this. He tried to give everybody a character, if not one person, but like a group, like the Filthy Animals or the Revolution. And he tried to make every match have an angle and every match seem important, which is something we didn't used to do. Right. No, I, I can get behind that. Right. It wasn't always a hit, but he was at least giving them something. Exactly. Giving them a reason, giving them, giving every match a reason on a pay-per-view. And it wasn't that long ago when we had just like, what would be like job matches on pay-per-views that didn't mean anything at all. Well, um, like uh, Doug Summers and Van Hammer. <laughs> that really happened too. Yeah. Uh, on a pay-per-view you paid for that shit. I mean, it's almost like you wish you had a sign who would pay for this. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Vampiro, we haven't talked about him here on the show before. Were you into Vampiro or not so much? This doesn't well, seem like a character that you're down with. No, I, 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 I didn't really like the character, but I liked the guy. Uh, I really liked him. I thought he, uh, I thought he cared a lot about the business. I thought he was very odd and creepy. Uh, but as far as this match is concerned, listen, this match 
had no beginning, no middle, no end, no reason, no rhyme. And then here we had uh, Oklahoma to our right, uh, and we were within the crowd. So it, it was a clusterfuck from the beginning. And I'm sorry I didn't pay much attention to the match. I apologize to Dave Meltzer. No, you're not sorry. Yes, I am. Do you have his number? I'll call him and tell him I'm sorry. I, uh, I do have his number, but okay, I, don't, hang on. I don't think he's accepting my calls anymore. Wait, wait, okay, I have it here. 1-800-DICKHEAD. Oh, goodness. I don't support this. I'm a, I'm a long-term subscriber. I mean, his newsletter, his life's work here is essentially the basis of our podcast. And you're okay yeah, with is. just Look, name calling I, I'm, him? I'm being funny. No, you're not. Try again. Okay. I'm trying to be a reverend. I listen, I respect, I respect anybody who, who has given his life to this business in that way. No, he never was behind the scenes. But it's a thankless job to write that many words every week. Never miss a week. I mean, he chose this profession. I'm not arguing that I I, I was quiet and you brought me out of my shell and Ming brought Lex Luger out of his shell in the next match, five and a half minutes in. Uh, I tell you, when I think of all time classics, I think of Ming and Lex Luger, um, mm. Meltzer would write Luger came out wearing a cervical collar, which Tony Schiavone proclaimed was a work. <laughs> well, it was the whole thing was set up to be a work. It's just funny for you to say that, um, <laughs> th- there were boring chants all over the place. Match was awful. Finish saw Liz spray Luger in the eyes with an unidentified substance. And Ming took off Luger's collar and put him in the Tongan death grip. Negative one star. Uh, this feels like Ming's getting a push because he's beaten Lex Luger uh, ten years prior. This would have never happened. Uh, but this kind of doesn't really amount to anything. But hypothetically, if you were booking WCW here, wouldn't you like put Ming in the main events? Me? Put yeah. Ming in the main event? Why not? <laughs> no, look. It seems like every pay per view that you and I talk about. We have Ming in the freaking uh, uh, pay-per-view doing something. So somebody liked him. Uh, somebody enjoyed what he did. Uh, I always did because, you know, we all knew that Ming, you know, Ming was, Ming, and we talked about this before, but Ming as a backstage guy was over with everybody. Sure. Over with everybody because he was a legit badass. But this was a match to further an angle. That's all this was. To, f- to further an angle about Liz and and uh, and Luger and and Luger being a uh, you know a, a chicken shit heel or just a chicken shit, uh, yeah, it, it was. I, I said it was. Did I say the word work on the air? Uh, I don't remember. As I said, I turned down the commentary. <laughs> hey, let oh, me ask stop. you this: um, When Liz sprayed Luger in the eyes, Meltzer called it an unidentified substance. Mm-hmm. Uh, would Klondike Bill have enjoyed Liz spraying him in the eyes with an unidentified substance? Oh, he would have had her do it twice. As a matter of fact, when I want the fans to go back and take a look at the Goldberg entrance, uh, to the match against, uh, Sid vicious. And you'll see Klondike Bill standing back there about one year before he passed away. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. That's wonderful. Um, uh, yeah, he would have loved Liz to spray him with something. Uh, next yeah. up, we see David Flair, and um, Meltzer mm. wrote, David Flair was seen stroking his crowbar. Boy, that was weird. <laughs> see, uh, David Flair was in an unwinnable position here. Uh, sure. A super nice guy, gets a bad rap from wrestling fans. 
he didn't ask to be in this spot. It was right place, right time legacy in the business. And they put, they threw him on TV clearly before he's ready. And so David in real life has kind of joked. I did wrestling in reverse instead of starting out working the independence and armories and then working to be on the big show. I was on the big show and then I finished working in the independence and the armories. Uh, do you have any memories of working with David Flair? Because you had known David since he was a little kid. Yeah. I really felt sorry for David being put in this position. I thought David, as far as trying to portray this young man who was obviously in love with Kimberly and who had been, uh, scorned by Kimberly and who was upset. I thought he played the character very, very well. And I, and I, and I felt sorry for him. I, I thought, uh, look, I, it, it, it can't be easy being Ric Flair's son. I mean, it's, it's unwinnable. There's, right. there's no, what you're always going to be compared and Charlotte's had an uphill battle, but at least, you know, this sounds weird, but at least mm-hmm. because she is a female performer, the comparison doesn't go as deep. Uh, certain right. people are going to give a little bit more, uh, creative license to what she is able to do or isn't able to do within the context of a, of a woman's match. But if your dad is Ric Flair, they expect you to go out here and, and work 60 minute broadways and put on clinics and win wrestler of the year. And that's just not possible. No win situation for the kid. I'm not so sure. And knowing, uh, knowing David as, as well as I did. And, and, you know, I didn't hang out with David or have family picnics with him, but I'm not so sure David really aspired to be a wrestler at the beginning. Maybe I'm wrong. Do you know something different than I know? No, I, I think he was, I was kind of put into this and coerced into this and who wouldn't try to do it. Right. Yeah. And it happens when he's very young and it's a significant amount of money, especially when you're that age. Right. And then when you're there, you meet Stacy Keebler. How about this? If I'm a teenager and I'm hooking up with Stacy Keebler and you're giving me uh checks with commas in it every week, I'll see you next Monday. I'm in you're damn straight. You damn straight. And I'll do whatever you want. Yeah. I'll pay. I'll, I'll play the goof and I'll play the, the, the kid that is, uh, out of control. And I'll get into an angle that is very uncomfortable because it is an uncomfortable angle. This whole thing. All right. So there's lots of silly booking here. Let's just kind of recap what we've had so far. We've had creative control interfere in the Jarrett Benoit match and a guitar shot. We had the misfits and Medusa. Uh, we had both of them involved. We've had a planted fan. We've had distracting music from the filthy animals revolution match. We've had creative control and Jarrett interfere in the Kurt Henning match. We've had Luger get involved with the sting and Brett match. We've got the Dr. Death, Oklahoma stuff. We've got the wall and one of the misfits getting involved in the Berlin match. It feels like at this point, every match has had some bullshit, no clean finishes. Is this just a booking MO of Vince Russo where he thought fans don't care about the matches. They care about the storyline, even on pay-per-view. No, with no question. That is, that's how Vince booked. Everything was not everything, but everything seemed to feed a storyline. Ming going over Lex Luger fed another storyline going forward. And, and that's all this was about. Uh, uh, again, you go back to the pre Vince Russo days. We never, we, we never had Matt. We never had, uh, pay-per-views and nitros filled with this much stuff. 
to the point of where it was too much. I remember leaving some of Vince Russo's meetings thinking, and the way he would present the show to us, thinking, man, this is going to be a hell of a show. we got all kinds of shit going on. This is going to be a hell of a show. And then the execution of it was shitty at times. Uh, a lot of that had to do with guys not being able to perform, like an Evan Courageous. Right. Uh, and a lot of that, and a lot of it had to do with just being too much. You know, you gotta, you got some, sometimes I always thought you got to give this show and what we do a chance to breathe. Uh, and sometimes we didn't do that. And this was a perfect example of it, but in the venue that we were in, uh, if you give the show a chance to breathe, there's going to be some jack off holding up a sign. So, which reminded me of this. I always thought, you know, holding up the signs were pretty cool, but it got to be uh, disconcerting at times because the the guys would look on the monitor. You know, we had the entrance monitor. Yeah. I thought, I thought we had a pretty good looking entrance actually. Yeah. Okay. But why the, and I often brought this up to, to Craig, why are we showing the program feed on the freaking monitor? Because now they look to their right, they see themselves on the big screen and they would throw up their hands, which to me, took away from the match because they didn't give a shit about the match. They just give a shit about themselves and the science. Understand that. Understand what type of era we were in. Uh, but I always thought that we should not put it on the big screen to where they could see themselves. I always at, thought that that was our mistake. At one point during the pay-per-view, uh, off camera, the crowd starts chanting, and I believe they're chanting at a woman in the crowd. Yeah. Can, can you speak to that? What was going on? Don't know, but I, I agree. They were chanting something. And, uh, again, I just thought, is it, is it, is it maybe a female, what happened when listener, uh, showing her, um, rumor and innuendo Mm, could be, do we have female listeners to what happened when 1.8% really? Yeah. We haven't chased any of them away with all the F bombs that you throw down. The 1.8% is comprised of Deborah McMichael and Medusa. Um, baby. <laughs> so at least four good reasons to support our <laughs> listeners. Uh, next up, Scott Hall retains both the U S and TV title. That's right. He's coming to the ring wearing both of these. I thought this was a cool look for him. Um, a lot of people say Scott Hall didn't have a significant singles run, but he's the U S and the TV champion at the same time. Come on. Uh, here he pins Booker T after about six minutes. Rick Steiner was announced as being injured. Uh, based on an angle from the previous Monday. And because of that, he forfeited the TV title to Scott Hall process. What I just said there, mm. uh, Rick Steiner's yeah. injured. So he just forfeits it to Scott Hall. Usually when someone is injured and can't defend the belt, don't they have a tournament? This is Meltzer yeah, but in the news. We already had a tournament going on. So yeah, just give it to a guy makes total sense. Sure. Uh, Booker T never seemed comfortable out there and didn't react well to being booed. This is from the observer. He messed up his sidekick after the breakdown spot, creative control ran in and distracted Booker T leading to hall, getting a win with an outsider's edge after the match, Jarrett and control were destroying T when the lights went out, when they came back on midnight and T cleaned house three quarter star, uh, up to this point, is this one of the worst shows you have been booked on as far as just crazy interference, no clean finishes. Yeah. I mean, it's not a bad show as far as the star power, and, but it's the way some of it is presented is like, God, are we ever just going to get a fucking match? 
Yeah, exactly. It's it's just it's just all mixed up. A uh, couple things about this match. Scott Hall is over like hell. Oh my god! Yeah, and and again, that's because this is WWE territory. Uh, one of the things, and this is this is so WCW. Scott Hall came out, and you know how he would always look around and say, "Hey, yo." Mm-hmm. Scott had been burned so many times by the sound not being up when he would say, "Hey, yo," that if you go back and watch this, he paused to say, "Hey, yo," so the sound guy would be ready, and he even looked at the microphone as if to say, "Is this thing on?" Before he would say, "Hey, yo," to me that smacked of WCW back then. It smacked of it. Uh, well, why, I, why can I you guys get out this right? If, if you know you've got all these, I mean, we hear so much about uh, Craig Leathers and and some of the other production people. How do you get this wrong to the point where the the performers have no confidence? Yeah, it will. It look to me, and I'm not blaming any one person for this because. You had a, an audio guy in the truck and, an, and then another guy, I guess, in the arena. But to me, the audio always, forever, was not there when it needed to be, more times than not. And that's, that goes back to the director, right? I can't uh, argue that. Because he, he's, control, he's controlling all that. But another thing is not making an excuse for the production, but again, there was a lot of shit going on. All of a sudden... We were a wrestling company, and now we're an entertainment company, uh, kind of like the WWE with a WWE writer in charge. And a lot of times it was just too much for us. And you could see it. You could absolutely see it. It was just too much for us. So I can't answer how it was historically wrong, but it seemed to me that it was always historically. It, it always something went wrong with audio. I even think that, uh, when Tony, either when Oklahoma or Tony Marinara sit down, their mic was not on. Next up, we've got David flair. Uh, he goes to a non decision with uh, Kimberly and a match that never really took place. This is word for word from the observer here. Uh, mm-hmm. this match slash angle slash atrocity was living proof that at least a semblance of wrestling ability is needed when you were inside the ring to entertain the audience. Kimberly threw a low blow. Flair didn't sell it as he had a protective cup on. Flair decked Nick Patrick and threatened Kimberly. Fans were hating this. Kimberly was on her knees, threatening or promising David, which distracted him just long enough so she could pull his cup out and give him a low blow and then put the cup in his mouth. He recovered. Canyon showed up and was laying out Flair until Flair came back and nailed him with the tire iron. DDP ran in and put the diamond cutter on Flair and was limping around to sell his injury. Then he took the tire iron and was about to kill Flair with it. Arn Anderson ran in and took the tire iron and hovered over Flair. Flair got up and turned on Anderson and laid him out with a two by four, ending with Anderson doing a stretcher job. Judging from the crowd reaction, literally nobody bought the stretcher job. Everyone left the ring and the entire crowd started booing heavily. Negative two stars. Um, What did you think of this? This this is something that I had kind of forgotten about. What did you think? Well, okay. I and and now we're talking 18 years ago. But still, if you think about 
and I'm being very serious here. If you think about domestic violence, it's, it's the wrong thing. It, it, it's the wrong thing to do. We had women taking bumps all over the place in, in this Wait, show. Did, did he give her, I, I don't remember this. Did he give her any sort of moves here? I don't remember that either. No, I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't think that he did. I, I think they were, they kind of skirted the issue a little bit here. Well, here's look, here's what entertained me. Two things, the way she looked coming to the ring and Arn Anderson on the stretcher <laughs> is the greatest thing. It, it owned me. I just, everything Arn does was gold to me oh, and, and his facial expression when he's on the stretcher yeah. is the funniest <laughs> thing ever. Yeah, it's like someone it's like someone put an air hose up his ass and his eyeballs are ready to pop out. Um, but you know what I also remember about this match? And, and I thought we were taking a little bit too far. It looked like when she reached in to get the cup out, it looked like she was getting ready to do something else, didn't it? No, yeah, I don't think that's what they're clearly teasing here, right? Yeah, I mean, I, even, I think even Heenan and I sold that. I mean, uh, how ridiculous thought, is that? I, I'm thinking... I'm thinking if she's going to take any bumps, she's going to come right out of that top. Right out of it. I think that's part of the plan. I think the idea here is put her in this skimpy of a top, hoping that she has a wardrobe malfunction. And then at the same time, uh, let's go ahead and um, tease. I don't know. Oral sex on pay-per-view. I don't know another way to say that. It 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 was a combination of. A crazy kid, domestic violence, oral sex, and a, uh, I don't know. It was, and a it was stretcher a fucking job, mess. Uh, it was a, with a tire <laughs> iron. He calls it a tire iron, but I thought it was a curl bar. It's just, yeah. Right. I, I, what they were, they, what, what were they? Ch- I went back and listened to it a couple of times when Arn was being sent out. What were they chanting? They were chanting something. I think they were chanting to a woman in the crowd. Okay, that's when it happened. All right. I think that uh, the woman in the crowd is, is getting the chance there, and I think they're asking her to show something. Oh, but they're, okay. they're actually chanting at Kimberly mm-hmm. a phrase at David when he's in the corner. This whole thing is so bad, it's actually kind of good. Yeah. I didn't. It doesn't belong at a pay-per-view, I don't think. No, it doesn't belong in, in, in wrestling. Hindsight. It doesn't belong anyway. It's It's a turd, but it was... A hilarious but it was a turd. good, well, I guess we're saying it's a good turd, right? Well, it's one of those things where sometimes it's so bad. It's good. Kind of like, yeah. uh, the broken Matt Hardy stuff this last year in TNA, they did some final deletion stuff. Well, some of it is so over the top ridiculous that it's kind of good. And, and I feel like that's what this was. Um, next up, we've got something we never thought we wanted to see Bill Goldberg and Sid vicious in a match. It's an, I quit match because both of these guys have devastating submission moves. What's your favorite Sid vicious submission hold <laughs> my favorite submission hold. Well, it's an, Didn't I quit Sid, match. So Sid just had one thing. He just had one thing. So what was his one thing? Choke slam. Oh, okay. I didn't know if you knew something off camera. Okay. No, uh, I, I see what you're looking for here. I'm not looking for it, but I know you were, uh, crowd heat was dead within one minute. According to Meltzer, Sid dominated throwing his patented worst punches in wrestling since blackjack Mulligan retired. And then Sid hit two choke slams. Goldberg came back with an arm bar. Fans hated Goldberg. Goldberg got a choke with a body scissor on the ground and Sid passed out and the ref stopped the match. Nobody bought the finish half a star. Um, I didn't think it was possible 
to get Sid and Goldberg this much heat. But the idea that Sid just lost to body scissors, <laughs> has this happened since gorgeous ladies arrest? I don't remember ever seeing a finish with body scissors. No, no, I, I agree. And it, it, this, I, it wasn't good. It was one of those, wasn't it one of those ultimate fighting now submission holds? Uh, I don't I, watch ultimate fighting. I don't watch, uh, MMA. That, but it wasn't one of those, you know, uh, submission holds to where he's got to tap out or he's going to go out type of thing. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I can, I can uh, get behind MMA, but even in MMA, I don't know that I've seen a finish to body scissors. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, you know, I've seen guys get, get choked out with, you know, like a, a triangle choke. Uh, and there's various other ways to choke a guy out with your legs, but a triangle choke is the one that most everyone listening is probably familiar. Um, but body scissors. Wow. If you could have anybody put you in body scissors, why would it be Ray Mysterio? <laughs> oh, me? Yeah. I, I think the only person I would want me put me in body scissors would be Medusa. See, I know where you're trying to go with this. Okay. I'm just trying to be funny. No, you're trying to, uh, you you're trying to, you're trying to think that I'm a switch hitter and you're trying to pre- present that I'm a switch hitter. Okay. Well, and I'm not. No, no, okay? no, 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 no. Listen, if, if I think a man is attractive, I'm going to say he's attractive. What's wrong with that? That's right. I don't think there's that's, anything wrong that's with what that. I'm, that's what I'm asking you. No, okay? I, I'm supportive of that. Okay. I don't, I don't know. This just got weird. <laughs> uh, Not as weird as David Flair and uh, Kimberly. That was, that was fun. Uh, next up, we have got Bret Hart pinning Chris Benoit in 17 and a half minutes to win the WCW title. This is directly from the observer. The first big spot was a clown out of the audience attacking Benoit. The clown turned out to be Malenko, but Hart made the save. Benoit hit a tombstone pile driver and a diving headbutt, but Hall and Nash came out to basically kill all the heat in the match. Hall decked the ref and gave Hart the outsider's edge. Goldberg ran in and speared Nash. Hart and Goldberg basically cleaned house, and Goldberg continued to brawl with Hall and Nash to the back. Even backstage at this point, the big screens in the building were showing the backstage brawl, taking the fans totally out of the match on TV. They did a split screen, which guaranteed that nobody would care about either brawl. This killed the match for several minutes until Benoit got the figure four leg lock and Hart made the ropes. The finishing sequence was excellent with Hart doing a superplex while standing on the top rope. But when Benoit coming back with two German suplexes. He went for a third, but after a series of reversals, Hart got the sharpshooter in the middle for the win. After the match, both Hart's kids and also his nephews and nieces by marriage, including the Dynamite Kids children, uh, came to ringside as Hart waved the Canadian flag. Three and a quarter stars. Uh, It feels like when you've got two performers like this, Bret Hart and Chris Benoit, in a championship match, one of Benoit's first championship matches. It's on pay-per-view. It's the main event. It's in Toronto. This should be a no-brainer, and it should be enough, but it's not enough. They need to put all this other garnish on there with Malenko and Goldberg and Hall and Nash. What did you think of this? I agree. We're armchair quarterbacking here, but after all the crazy stuff we've seen in this show that is freaking loaded, in other words, as we used to say, how much more shit can we stuff down that little hole? A show that is loaded that we should just had a straight match with no interference at all. But again, in Vince's booking and some listen, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. 
I always give him credit for, for, for thinking about stuff and, and wanting stuff to work, but he always wanted to further another angle with everything that he did. This, uh, every match was a, fur- every match pushed you to something else. Uh, in reality, it would have been just good to have these guys go 17 minutes, 20 minutes or whatever it is. Brett raised the Canadian flag, uh, and get the win. Um, just a minute ago, you said, mm. how much more shit can we stuff on this little hole? Is that a, is that a Klondikeism? <laughs> no, it's not. That's a productionism. Oh, okay. Okay. Klondikes would, would say, how much more shit can we see come out of this little hole? Oh gosh. Why are you doing this? Well, what, you, what you set we, me up. What for are it. we doing? What are you we doing? Set, you set me up for it. Okay. This is, this is shameful. <laughs> don't, don't ever bring up Klondike's name. If you're not ready to hear what I got to say. Well, I don't think that I was ready and okay. I, don't, I, I don't know that I'm ready for next week either, but we're coming back next week and unbelievably, um, there is so much wrestle crap worthy stuff in WCW 2000. It's going to be hard to narrow this down. And the only yeah. thing I know to do is to just go in order. When I ask you about 2000, is there one thing in particular that stands out the most? No. Uh, yeah. I was miserable. That's what stands out. I knew, I knew that the, uh, that the coffin on a, uh, on a carriage rolling downhill was more than halfway downhill. I could see the end coming, so I was miserable. Can I say something about this Toronto show that Please I kind of do. talked about last week? Yeah. Uh, and and we say a lot of crazy shit and on on this program. A lot of it's tongue in cheek, and we like to be funny. But I'm going to be serious for a moment. Uh, this is a true story. Uh, there was a creep online who had a website and who basically, uh, and I, somebody called my attention to it. And usually I left these things alone. Uh, and this creep hated me as many of them did. And I can understand that you're liked, you're hated. And this creep had called for, if anyone ever saw my daughter to beat her up. What? Yeah. Uh, so I read it got really pissed off and uh, then the creep called for when we were in Toronto for somebody to take me out. So I got in touch with Turner security and I said, listen, I'm really concerned because, you know, people would respond to what he wrote on the internet. I said, I'm really concerned that some of these people are going to really do what he wants them to do take me out, find my daughter, hurt my daughter. I think the, I think the term was, uh, smash her in the face with your fist and break her teeth. Oh my gosh. What, what, oh yeah. This is, so, I've never heard of this. Oh yeah. So, uh, two things happened. Uh, I got to the building early that day cause I was really, I was really concerned. Uh, and, and probably, uh, I probably overreacted to, to my, to that. Uh, and Doug Dellinger set up security for me that day. I got to the building before anybody else. Because I, I wanted to get in there before the fans started coming to the arena. Uh, and I had extra security for me that day. I contacted Turner Security, and Turner Security at, at first said, yeah, I don't know what we can do. 
could you send me the links or send me something that he wrote? So I did. In the interim, Gary Jester, who was one of our bookers, I told Gary, I said, I've, I've turned this over to Turner Security. And he said, I think you should just drop it. I think you're making more out of it than you should. Just leave it alone. Uh, Turner Security came back to me a couple of days later. This was after our event in Toronto and said, we have uh, looked into this situation. We have contacted the FBI and we are going to shut down the website if you give us the go ahead. And I told Turner Security, nah, forget it. And Turner Security was very angry with me because they put some work into this. Sure. And then now they're not saying it through. Right. Uh, and the, the people who ran the website contacted me via email and apologized and said it would happen again. The guy contacted me through email and we, we kind of got a line of, uh, of conversation. Don't remember his name. Uh, I know there were some people, but not at this event in, in Toronto, there were some people at some of our events had a sign with his name on it. But, uh, who was this? I was, I was pretty fucking irate that somebody would even suggest this for my daughter who didn't, didn't even know who Ric Flair was. Uh, so that, that's the backstory of what happened to me during that, during that time in my life. And that situation combined with all the shit that we were going through was one of the things that, uh, made me a pretty miserable fuck during the last year of WCW. Well, tell us who the site was. Don't know. Can't remember the guy's name. It was a, was a last name and they would put up his last name. So-and-so rules are just the last name. I can't remember. I wish I remembered. I, I don't know if he's still out there or not. It's not scoops or sushi X or any of the stuff that was popular back then. Don't know. Hmm. I have a feeling that if, if I go back and look at some old tapes and see, uh, see his name pop up on the sign, I would remember what it was. Man, but, that's uh, crazy. I've never heard isn't that. that crazy. That's absolutely crazy. Uh, and you know, uh, you know how they say, uh, when something bad happened and nothing really bad happened to my family, but you know how, as, as they say, as some people say, when something bad happens to the family, well, we forgive them. You know, I don't forgive that son of a bitch at all, not at all. And, uh, I don't even know if he's listening to this, but if he is, you know, he can go fuck himself. Mm. Uh, I understand if you don't like me, but leave my freaking family alone. And I know as a father, you would agree with that too. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that with us. There's no way anybody listening to this now could have ever known that that was a situation or a possibility. I mean, I'd, I'd never heard this story. Um, yeah, well, no one knows the story of me, Gary Juster, and Turner Security, and Doug Delinger. So, Well, way to bring us down after a Klondike Bill story. We go to that. <laughs> I wanted to tell a story, and I mentioned that, you know, when we were teasing what we're yeah. going to talk about next week, I got a story that no one knows. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm in, in a way I'm, I'm profoundly blown away that my commentary had that much effect on people back then. It had enough effect on that jackass to want to hurt my daughter. Well, see, when I listen to your commentary, I didn't want to hurt your daughter. I wanted to hurt myself. <laughs> so 
It had a similar effect. Just, you know, same thing. Just different. You know what I mean? Well, can I say this? Yeah. You are the greatest podcast podcast host in the history of professional wrestling. You miserable fuck. Easy Let's go to the ring. Okay. Easy for you to say. Uh, so let's talk about what we're going to cover next week. Um, did someone else start stalking Tony in 2000? Stay tuned. Uh, we'll find out next week. Uh, WCW 2000. It's the beginning of the end, man. It's, uh, it's on the way down. Let's start with the beginning of the year sold out 2000. That's what happened January 16th in Cincinnati, Ohio. And it's famous for what happened in the main event. It's Chris Benoit and Sid vicious for the world heavyweight championship. We've got a hardcore match with Kevin Nash and Terry Funk. We've got a caged heat match with the wall and Billy Kidman. We've got a last man standing match with Buff Bagwell and Diamond Dallas Page. We've got Tank Abbott taking on Jerry Flynn. Booker Mm -hmm. T finally facing Stevie Ray. Billy Kidman and Perry Saturn in a bunkhouse brawl. A fatal four-way for the hardcore belt with Norman Smiley, Ming, Fit Finley, and Brian Nobbs. The Cruiserweight Championship is on the line with Oklahoma and Medusa. Big Vito and Johnny the Bull take on the Harris Brothers. Vampiro takes on David Flair and Crowbar in a handicap match and a catch-as-catch-can match with Billy Kidman and Dean Malenko. What do you remember most about Sold Out 2000? I don't remember remember a fucking thing about it. But Medusa in the ring against Oklahoma has piqued my interest. There's barbecue sauce involved. There's a spoiler for you. This is also the show. Mm. It's Chris Benoit's last WCW show. We'll leave it at that. Sold out 2000 is poll topic number one. Poll topic number two, the very next month, they're back in San Francisco at the Cow Palace for Super Brawl. It's become a tradition for WCW to do this show here. Uh, and in the main event, we've got Sid Vicious taking on Scott Hall and Jeff Jarrett in a triple threat match, a singles match between Hulk Hogan and the total package, a Texas death match between Ric Flair and Terry Funk. A lot of people forgot that match even happened here in 2000. The Mama Lukes, which is Big Vito and Johnny Bull, take on David Flair and Crowbar. This is a Sicilian stretcher match for the tag titles. Billy Kidman is up against Vampiro. Big T is against Booker T. You may remember him as Ahmed Johnson. Uh, We've got a leather jacket on a pole match. Let me say that again. A leather jacket on a pole match with Big Al and Tank Abbott. The Wall taking on the Demon. A handicap match with three count. All of them. Evan Courageous, Shannon Moore, and Shane Helms against Norman Smiley. Uh, And then for the hardcore title, we've got Bam Bam Bigelow and Brian Nobbs. And then... For the vacant cruiserweight title, Lash LaRue versus Prince Iakea. When you run through that card, it's hard to see how you guys didn't make it. Uh, <laughs> Super Brawl 2000. What do you remember most about this show? Uh, I think I remember uh, San Francisco being one of the great cities, uh, even though the Cow Palace was you know, way out of, out, of, out of the interior of the city. Uh, I remember a lot of things about Tank Abbott trying to get him involved in stuff was always uh, crazy. But I also remember that if you go back to some of our pay-per-views, even the mayhem, uh, the one we're talking about, this had a little bit more star power than the rest of them did with Hogan involved and flair involved and Terry funk involved. Uh, so on paper, it looked like a better pay-per-view for us, but look, we did not have the talent roster 
to be able to do all these things. What? Let's run through that again. We did not have the talent roster to be able to do all these things. Hulk Hogan, Terry Funk, Ric Flair, Jeff Jarrett, uh, Sid Vicious, Scott Hall, Lex Luger, Booker T. Booker T. Stop. Now give me some more after that. Tank Abbott, Big Al, Bam Bam Bigelow, Prince Iakea, Vampire. And then you and then you said Evan Courageous. Oh gosh, man. He may be oh. like the new character on the show here. Next no, up. No, just no. Nothing happening, Evan Courageous. <laughs> oh my gosh. You wanted a good to, kid. To, good kid. He just he just he he, he wasn't a, a good performer. He, here's what he I like. may have been a he may have been a great uh uh wrestler in the Atlantic Coast Conference, but he was not a good professional wrestler. He wasn't. 2000 continues uncensored 2000. This one's in March. It takes place in Miami. It draws 5,000 people on pay-per-view mm. in Miami. On top, we've got the Yappa Pie Indian strap match, Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair, uh, <laughs> a strap match, a Yappa Pie. Stra- well, that's got to win Sid Vicious and Jeff Jarrett for the world title sting and Lex Luger in a lumberjack match, Dustin Rhodes and Terry Funk in a bull rope match. The Harris brothers taking on the mama Luke's. This is for the tag titles, Vampiro and fit Finley in a false count anywhere match Kidman and Booker take on the Harlem heat 2000, which is big T and Stevie Ray. They've also got cash and Jay Biggs on the outside there. Uh, Brian knobs is in a hardcore match against all of three count bam, bam Bigelow takes on the wall. Norman smiley and the demon take on Lenny lane and rave. And then the artist formerly known as Prince Iakea with Paisley take on psychosis with Juventud Guerrera. What do you remember most about uncensored 2000? Holy shit. I don't remember anything about that. I don't remember half the names that you just brought up. What about the Yappa pie? (laughs) The Yappa pie. The Yappa pie. The artist who was Paisley. Oh, come on. You don't know who that is. No, it's Booker T's wife. Charmel. Oh God. This is going to. This has to win just so we can refresh Tony's memory. Tony called the match, but this will be the first time he's ever watched it. (laughs) Apparently. (laughs) And it'll probably sound like that too. I tell you what we do to, to pick the right, to pick the one that you want, go back. If you will, all of our listeners and read what Meltzer had to say about my commentary. And when he buried me the most, that's the one that we talk about. And I guess he buried me equally as bad on all of them. So I don't know. Yeah. It's going to be Look, tough to pick the, that Listen, This was, this was 2000 was my worst, was the worst year of my career by not only my, by not only my attitude, but by my performance and by just, this is where I was, I was being burned out by the business. That's not an excuse. I should have been professional enough to let that go by, but. That's, this is when the greatest blank blank in the history of blank blank started and was hey, of course, hypothetically, you know. let me just ask, have you right. ever, when you were, um, spending time with Lois mm-hmm. referred to something as the greatest blank blank in the history of blank blank? No, no, that was a, that was an on, that was an on air persona thing. Mm. Well, I, See, I, you, you, you read the internet too much. 
Well, I was just hoping you would try to be funny. That's kind of the reason people listen. Oh, okay. <laughs> Slamboree 2000 is poll topic number four. This one happened in May. This happens at the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, here, let's kind of run down what we've got here. Starting the show off, we've got Chris Candido with Tammy Lynn Sitch challenging for the Cruiserweight Championship uh, against the artist. She is in his corner again here, Charmel Paisley. Uh, next up, we've got the hardcore title match. This is good stuff here. Terry Funk taking on Norman Smiley and Ralphus. Uh, we've also got Sean Stasiak and Kurt Henning in a single match. <laughs> oh, that got you. Uh, Scott Steiner uh, with Madeja and Shakira is going to challenge Captain Hugh G. Rection for the United States Championship. Mike what? Awesome has a, I mean, this has to win. Mike Awesome uh, has a match with Chris Canyon. Uh, the total package takes on Buff Bagwell. Shane Douglas finally gets Ric Flair in the ring after years of smack talk in the ECW arena and online and in shoot interviews. It finally happened. Shane Douglas and Ric Flair. We also get Sting and Vampiro. Hulk Hogan with Horace Hogan takes on Billy Kidman with Tori Wilson. Uh, the special guest referee here is Eric Bischoff. So let's run through what we've got so far. We've got Sonny in the WWE. We've got Ralphus wrestling with Norman Smiley against Terry Funk in a hardcore match. We've got Scott Steiner wrestling a guy whose name is Huge Erection. Um, Buff Bagwell and Lex Luger, Douglas and Flair, Sting and Vampiro. And now Hulk Hogan and Billy Kidman. So much of this has been talked about over the years. But what you're really here for, the main event. Jeff Jarrett taking on David Arquette, the world champion, by the mm. way, and Diamond Dallas Page. This happens inside the Ready to Rumble cage match. David Arquette is champion on pay-per-view. It happened. It's Slamboree 2000, poll topic number four. I know I said it twice here, maybe three times, but there's so much fun we can have talking about WCW 2000. Slamboree 2000 has to win just because of David Arquette, does it not? It does because I am uh, one of the people to blame for David Arquette becoming the world champion. It's, it's true. Uh, it's, I was on, uh, a couple of years ago, I was on uh, Vince Russo's podcast and we discussed it because everyone says, I get the tweet all the time. Shivani, are you the one to blame? Are you the one that came up with the idea of David Arquette being the world champion? The answer is no, but I was in that discussion. The way Vince Russo remembers it, it's something else. So we need to talk about that, and I'll tell you my story on what I thought happened when he became the world heavyweight champion. And there's a lot of people that say, well, that just completely destroyed the credibility of the world heavyweight championship. If you don't think our credibility was destroyed by then, then you weren't watching. Right. I agree. So. So there you go. There's your four poll topics. Go vote right now. It's on Twitter at WHW Monday. Uh, just go ahead and pull up your Twitter machine. It's at WHW Monday. Throw us a follow. You'll see the poll pinned to the top. Sold out 2000 is poll option number one. Number two, Super Brawl 2000. Number three, Uncensored 2000. And last but certainly not least, Slamboree 2000. It's all things 2000. We want to remind you as well, throw us a follow on Twitter at WHW Monday and like us on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash WHW Monday. 
We're going to give you some insight as to how you can win a copy of this brand new four horsemen book from the mid Atlantic gateway. If you didn't win last week and you don't think you're going to win this coming week because you're just negative, or you would like to go ahead and just make sure you get your copy as fast as possible. Go pre-order right now, whw.midatlanticgateway.com. That's whw.midatlanticgateway.com. And uh, we want to see you right here next week. We're going to give away another copy of this Four Horsemen book. We're going to tell you what to do on our social media accounts, so go like and follow us there. And don't forget, mark your calendars, tell your friends, get the word out. June 19th, we're coming at you with another Four Horsemen edition of What Happened When. It's the show you always wanted us to talk about. Jim Crockett Promotions, it doesn't get more Jim Crockett than the Four Horsemen. The greatest stable ever, and we're doing it on Monday, June 19th. Uh, But next week, it's WCW 2000. Go vote in that poll right now. And Tony, when I look at the clock, I realize it's about that time. It's about that time. And ladies and gentlemen, the main event here today could be the greatest main event in the history of professional wrestling. And it is Evan Courageous against Dave Meltzer. One-on-one for the world heavyweight. Well, let me make that the world shithead championship of the world. One-on-one. Oh, a big bump. Down goes Meltzer, and wait a minute, something is falling out of his ass. It's the Great Muda. Apparently, the Great Muda is going to defend the title now against Evan Courageous. Nothing happening. Evan Courageous is running towards the back. Here comes the Great Muda. He's chasing him back. We're going to have to come back to you next week. The tape machines are rolling. We're out of time on WHW Monday here on the MLW Radio Network. The world of MLW Radio never stops.